Hello everyone, welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode with Matt Siebel is all about his recent article, The Political Economy of Chappelle's Redemption Songs. It was in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Matt is an assistant professor of American Literature and Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, so there's a little bit of Mark Twain in there. It's one of my favorite comedy pieces I've read this year, the other being Seth Simons, and there's a link to both of those pieces, and... It's one of the best back and forths I've had about stand-up, about comedy in general, and I'm very, very happy with this episode. If you want 700 or more episodes of this, go to youmethemeverybody.com. The last year of shows is available in iTunes and Spotify. If you want everything, go to youmethemeverybody.com. Uh, there's also a chance to donate to the Patreon link there, which we would appreciate greatly because we do not have Dave Chappelle, Comedy Central, Viacom, HBO Max, Netflix money. And it's not looking like we're going to get any of that anytime soon. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Matt. I find that people become more conversational. They're more respected. Like when you're doing a one-on-one interview, then oftentimes the guests sort of, it's all about them, right? But when they're part of a multi-person conversation, then there's a lot, they, they test themselves a lot more and it, it sort of cre- it's more creative, more collaborative, uh, gener- more generative. I think. Actually, let's go. At least from that's there. been my experience. Yeah. Because what you wrote, which I loved, uh, the political economy of Chappelle's redemption songs, is a very. I love this piece because it's it 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 talks about something that I haven't been able to pontificate, and you're coming from it from a beautiful academic standpoint. But you just mentioned something about conversation and what Chappelle is doing is essentially taking the back and forth completely away. It's complete it's a one-way street now in a way that very few stand-ups have ever lived their lives. That's interesting. That and this might have to do with my own lack of practical experience in the techniques of stand-up comedy. I certainly understand that there is a relationship between the performer and the audience, which is true in many live art forms. But the idea that that is a conversation is interesting to me and not, it's not the way I would have thought about stand-up comedy because I often think that stand-up comedy has the illusion of spontaneity but is actually quite scripted quite constructed uh quite planned in advance and that one of the great skills that Chappelle and many other comics have had is making us feel as though something's being made up on the spot when in fact it's been worked out over many months you are absolutely correct what i should have presented it as is not necessarily the act of doing stand-up but the ecosystem around it Chappelle does not have a podcast Chappelle does not use twitter Chappelle uses stuff like instagram very sparingly and every single one of his interactions is highly controlled and he gets to determine the venue and that is incredibly rare the only other people that are able to move as many tickets as Chappelle are maybe Joe Rogan and the reason why people know Joe Rogan 
is not because of stand-up or news radio, but because of the right. podcast. It's that interaction. That's the difference between Chappelle and pretty much everyone else. Maybe Chris Rock is on this level. Maybe Jerry Seinfeld is on this level. But Seinfeld's a much more, in a weird way, a man of the people than Chappelle simply by doing comedians in cars getting coffee, which is which you mentioned in this piece as well. They're all, all these people are in their little bubbles. I'm not saying that they're not, but Chappelle's bubble seems to be the biggest and the strongest, if that makes sense. It does. And, and the, it most consistently brings him back to stand up, right? That even when he's releasing something to YouTube or he's releasing something to um, Instagram, it's from his stand up set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he very, he does, he, he had, you know, he did have pretty important appearances over the last year on David Letterman's show. Uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast, as you mentioned, but I agree. It's interesting that the sort of ecosystem of comedy has clearly embraced the podcast and and the stars of people like Joe Rogan and Mark Maron have clearly risen as a result of that. And, and, and even Jerry Seinfeld seems to have a sort of second life to his career by virtue of a conversation show, mm-hmm. right? Not exactly a podcast, but it's kind of like a podcast in oh, the yeah. way that it's structured, right? Oh, yeah. And so I do think it's really interesting that though I would say particularly somebody like Marin, and I, I haven't listened as much to Rogan, so I can't speak to, to his show, but particularly somebody like Marin whose stand-up may have not been as highly regarded as somebody certainly like Chappelle or Chris Rock really has found a voice and a place for himself in the podcast medium and that that a lot of his talents are shown off when he is put in conversation with somebody else and I do I really appreciate the sort of the possibility that comic talents will have this alternative medium through which to develop what might be slightly different sets of skills. Sure. Sure. Um, the, the, the biggest difference between Marin and Chappelle to me, and you don't necessarily, you don't use this word, but Chappelle uses this word is the hero. Um, you mentioned victimization in this piece and Chappelle is trying to play both hero and victim in every single single thing he does. He literally begins his most recent Netflix um, boast piece about how he, like people like to see the hero fall because yeah. people and I'm and I'm the hero because I have covid and and how dare you say that I shouldn't do these live shows that put other people at risk. I'm the hero. But he's also the victim within a minute. Yeah. Marin never claims to be the hero <laughs> to me. Right. And if he is a hero, he's a bad he's an anti-hero. That's the that's the interesting thing about the Chappelle thing. Did Mark Twain Isn't also that, feel like a hero and a victim at the exact same time? Uh, I would say to a degree, but Twain definitely always plays the self-loathing card more like a you know a Marin. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Where Twain. I think Twain certainly had a certain degree of of pride and ego. There's no there's no doubt about that. But particularly in his public performance, it was always turning himself into the subject of satire. 
uh, and that he was a representative of the frail. He was as representative of the frailties of the human race as anybody. And therefore, that gave him some authority to comment upon it. But it certainly, he was certainly resistant to the romantic ethos of the hero in general. And so he, he would have resisted portraying himself as a hero. I do have to ask, though, whether, whether Chappelle's habit of playing hero and victim isn't justifiably tied to his prioritization of race. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. for you know for Twain, for Marin, for Seinfeld, right, there there is an element in, of privilege in that self satire, self loathing, that presentation of oneself as fraught and frail. That unfortunately, many black artists have felt it necessary to present themselves from the perspective of idealized hero mm-hmm. because they are the representative of unexploited, discriminated people, marginalized people. Fair, very fair point. I think that the thing that riled me up so much that seemingly no one was talking about and you have it in your piece and I'm so glad you do is the SNL aspect of all of this specifically the 2020 Biden election night uh, post show and in that monologue he does the lit cigarette thing whatever this is not new territory whatsoever but for the first time he kind of calls out Lauren Michaels when a joke bombs and equates a failure to cancel culture and that really is disheartening because you would think that someone that the greatest stand-up of the last 30 years wouldn't be that dumb to believe that those that cancel culture is the same thing as just a joke not working does this make sense yeah i do i mean i definitely think that you know maybe the core discomfort that i have with Chappelle's recent work is his seeming legitimization of cancel culture and a kind of blurring of questions about deplatforming about certain types of speech that should be valued by comedians uh, the ability to say things and have a joke fail and say uh, you know uh, the, the ability to say things that are you know, controversial, explicit, vulgar, otherwise distasteful, and not have them be career-defining. I, I do think that there is a legitimate concern there. I think that's very different from celebrating hate speech, discriminatory speech, yeah. right? uh, from, you know, being removed from a platform for inciting violence. Yeah. And I do think that there's a real danger to conflating those two things, to conflating. I mean, the the big one, obviously, in Chappelle's recent routines has been sort of conflating cancel culture with the Me Too movement, with the failure of a, you know, a risque joke, right? That these, you know, he seems to blend all of these things together and and maybe there is 
some cultural relationship between them, but it needs to be parsed out very carefully as opposed to sort of dumped into one bucket of cancel culture. <laughs> and this sort of goes back to where we began, which do you think that he would be conflating all of these things if he weren't in a bubble? And do you think that if he was able to workshop that SNL monologue the same way almost every other comedian has ever workshopped an SNL monologue, which is going to clubs, going to venues for weeks to work on one thing, he would know by based on audio audience reaction what's actually funny instead of just knowing, oh, I've been doing this so long, I'm the greatest, why would I need to practice this? It's clearly good, and if not, it's cancel culture. Does that make sense? It, does, it, it makes sense. I have a slightly different reading, which is I don't think Chappelle cares to be funny right now. Oh, 100% agreed. I love that aspect of your piece. Please continue. I, I think that, and I think particularly in the SNL monologue, I, I, I would also say this about 846, he is quite evidently interested in subverting the audience's desire to laugh, right? That this, I bet many people in that studio, when he came on stage, were expecting a kind of catharsis, right? that he would give voice to the relief that they were already feeling by virtue of the election results. And he withheld that, I think, very intentionally. I don't think it was because he hadn't worked out the material. I think it was because he didn't want to give them that thing that they expected. That's fair. That's a good point. So let's take that idea but put it on two other people that you mentioned in the piece specifically Jerry Seinfeld and John Oliver John Oliver is currently in a bubble and he also came up through podcasting he had a really great show called The Bugle and he was a stand-up and as of now I don't think he would refer to himself as a stand-up he is making his show in a bubble do you think he's trying to be funny at this point or do you think he's just trying to make points because you pull this quote from uh, his appearance on uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Uh, that was a sequence of words that you knew had a laugh at the end of it, so you said them, to which Seinfeld replies, that's it, you've just described my entire brain. So these are two people, in theory, that are just doing something for laughs without any ethics behind it. For, based on this paragraph, I think. I think that's the read. But are they actually funny? Can you actually be funny right now due to living in this bubble? That's a weird question. <laughs> yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot going on there. I, for me, it's not just John Oliver, but it's this entire genre of comedy news that is in a strange place now. It has been for a long time, but I think we've reached a particularly problematic moment where clearly those shows are still built around punchlines. Mm -hmm. They are still built around generating laughter. And that, that laughter oftentimes subverts or potentially even trivializes the political messaging that I think those shows only have the opportunity to do because 
of the promise of the punchline, right? That I, oh, okay. a lot of the things that that um, that John Stewart was able to say, that John Oliver is now able to say, a lot of the sort of what we might characterize as progressive political messaging in a corporate art form is only allowed to exist on those networks because it is always diffused by a punchline and that it doesn't have to be taken seriously in the same way that say Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has to be taken mm -hmm. seriously because we know there's always going to be that trivialization inherent to laughter and i i know that the you know if you read the oral history book about the daily show you'll see that a lot of the writers and on-air talent were very aware of this and, and very troubled by it mm -hmm. all the way back to I, I remember one of the really crucial moments where they became aware of it was when i think it was colbert was interviewing john mccain during like the 2000 election yeah on the bus and and he let him off the hook on what was a really incisive question, the kind of question that other reporters hadn't been allowed to ask McCain. And Colbert asked it, and McCain was dumbstruck by it. And then Colbert turned it into a joke about his own ignorance. And that was one of the first moments that the Daily Show producers and writers realized, you know, holy shit, we just kind of let him off the hook mm -hmm. and that that's a potential problem if we become as they clearly have the 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 preferred news source for many demographics yeah that's interesting this makes me think of uh the recent piece in the new republic by seth simons about the alt-right in comedy and the idea of freedom of speech and stuff like that. And I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just can't understand why certain forms are thriving in, in certain ways. For example, like the Rogan type podcast is to, from the outside, clearly thriving on the right and your daily shows, et cetera, are thriving on the left. And I don't, I can't understand why and why those two demographics are gravitating towards those types of presentations. I mean, there's also Chapel Trap House, which gets the left, and I, there is some crossover, but maybe I'm just in a very small bubble myself, and I'm not understanding why people are being attracted to this more and more and more while I get less and less turned on by all of it. Does that make sense? It's it, Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I... So here would be my interpretation, and I do think it's it's a complicated question, and I'm not familiar enough with all of these different shows and brands to do careful analysis. But I do think that one reason why we might see comedy shows emerging as vehicles for both progressivism in its more radical forms and conservatism in its more radical forms is the larger corporatization of media, which regulates forms of speech and particularly regulates forms of political speech and political critique. And that's one of the things that I try to talk about in my 
piece is that critique is allowed to a degree in comedy because of that diffusing aspect of laughter. And so corporate media, whether it's news media or uh, television programming that might be, or, or, or film for that matter, Right. Big franchise film like, you know, The Mandalorian or, uh, or Star Wars or uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Those things are all trying to be apolitical, are claiming some sort of apolitical ground. I, I think that it's all very political, but they are attempting to walk this impossible line where their entertainment is not caught up in the partisan polarization of the culture in which it is embedded. Mm -hmm. Comedy is slightly freed from that corporate aesthetic. And by virtue of that, it doesn't surprise and, and yet has a very large populist audience. And so it doesn't surprise me that there are some shows and some brands and some comedians emerging who see their these vehicles as a way of bringing forms of somewhat radical political critique out of the activist underground, out of the academy, mm -hmm. and giving it a mainstream populist audience. Now, I don't want to equivocate between the, you know, the Daily Show and the Joe Rogan experience, particularly given that I haven't consumed them both with any regularity recently. Um, but I do expect that, I, I do believe right, that comedy has become the preferred vehicle for political critique for at least mainstream populist political critique that you're allowed to do things in a on a comedy platform that you're not allowed to do on a cable news network and that that is potentially very appealing for particularly an american populace who feels as though things desperately need to change right mm -hmm. that the political status quo is broken yeah. You're more likely to hear new ideas on a comedy show than you are on, you know, MSNBC or Fox News. So you're right in a lot of ways, clearly, about the commodification of all of this and about giant media structures putting repackaging old stuff into making it popular to, to maintain popularity. Right. There's a reason why. Netflix and HBO Max wanted Chappelle show. It's it's not absurd to think about that. And you mentioned the mainstream populist audience, but I think it's very fair to say that they're trying to maintain something that is very fast and quickly fading away. There really is not going to be a mainstream populist audience for anything except maybe sports, maybe just the NFL in the next 20 years because of these because of all of these platforms and because of things like YouTube and, and Spotify, et cetera, we're not going to see another Chappelle. 
we're not going to see a comic that had a sketch show on a cable network that was aired nonstop for 20 years ever again. This is over. We're going to get your Tim Robinsons on Netflix catering to a specific niche audience. It's and like play that out across the board. Does this make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, very well established media studies formula, right? Mm -hmm. That, that we go through historical periods of media diversification followed by eras of media concentration. And that's, you know, that's why I would hesitate to say we're not going to see another Dave Chappelle. We probably aren't going to see another J Dave Chappelle in the next 10 years. I would totally agree with that, that okay. we are we are in a period of diversification in which we increasingly are defined by very personalized forms of media consumption, right? That we each have a kind of media fingerprint that we are not, you know, it's not like it was in the 1960s when there were, you know, everybody was watching, you know, an hour of news exactly. or at least a large, you know, a large portion of the population was watching a half hour of local news, a half hour of national news. They were consuming, you know, largely the same sitcoms. They were, you know, reading a local paper and maybe a national paper, right? And that the, the sort of consumption of the, you know, the world of culture and politics was relatively concentrated into a, a relatively narrow range of platforms. We, you know, we're all reading, watching, consuming, listening to, to highly discrepant things. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it is very personalized. And I think there's a lot of problems associated with that. However, I would say that the history of media suggests that this period of diversification will eventually turn the other direction, right? That over and over again, we have seen new media technologies create the possibility for that diversification, which has a lot of positive elements to it, right? That it, it, it gives a, a wider range of voices the opportunity to uh, gain a larger audience. Right? It transforms the orthodoxy. Right? But then almost always a new form of concentration emerges, whether it's a new technology or whether it's a regulation of those existing technologies. And I think we're, we're on the precipice of potentially seeing that shift in the next five to 10 years, whether it's through the regulation of social media companies or whether it's through just the competition between social media platforms and streaming services, right? That, that we're not going to have, I, you know, I feel fairly confident that we're not going to have eight or nine streaming services for more than the next five or 10 years, right? That a lot of those, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, you know, all of the ones that have been launched recently, those are going to narrow down mm -hmm. to, you know, probably three or four at some point. Okay. And so that that's one way in which the the concentration will begin. And the same, I think, the same will be too, true for for social media, at both because those companies will compete with one another until they merge, and because I do think I do foresee some forms of regulation taking place, which will uh, you know, which often contributes to a concentration of cultural power. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? A concentration of cultural power. Oh, I, I, I don't think it's one or I. I can't 
say that it's one or the other. I think this is a this is a cycle that takes place over and over again and is kind of inevitable. Yeah. Right? That me, you know, the, the emergence of new mediums, the emergence of new media technology is not something that we can control and it's not something that we can um, you know, rationalize or justify. It happens, or, you know, this is the sort of you know, classic McLuhan Postman argument that these are you know, we're going to have new forms. Yeah. We're going to have new technologies. There's nothing we can do to stop them. <laughs> um, and then it's once they emerge, once they, uh, you know, sort of saturate, then it's how we use them, how we adapt to our, our values and our priorities. Um, and one way of doing that is then to embrace other technologies, other mediums, right? But I don't think that that cycle of diversification and concentration has an ethos to it. You know, one form is not better than the other. Although we do often see during the sort of epochal shift from diversification to concentration or concentration to diversification, often coincides with some kind of political crisis, economic crisis, some kind of crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even think about the political crisis aspect of it, but this is maybe way too simplistic and I'm trying to make the world make sense in ways that doesn't necessarily need to make sense. But I come from a bar culture, right? Um, I've been doing this show for a very long time and it kind of sort of started in bars and I used to work in bars since I was 21 and there are rules in bars. There's regulations in bars and it's really, really simple stuff. It's not that much different than you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. And if social media, if theaters, if all of this were just run like a bar, you wouldn't have these problems because you can't go to any bar and say a bunch of Nazi stuff and that's it. You just can't, they'll kick you out. They won't serve you drinks. You're kicked out of the bar and it seems like without any sort of regulation, you just get a bunch of people espousing horrible Nazi ideas or, and then once they're kicked out, they played the victim, but they were never the victim. They're just saying Nazi stuff. Does this make sense? Oh yeah. 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 There's also, there's, there's always been a social cost for unorthodox political expression. Yeah. And when those political expressions romanticize harm to others, when they celebrate discrimination, exploitation, violence, I mean, it's not like those people are being imprisoned and executed for that hateful speech. They're they're paying a social cost, right? And, and also, a lot of the times, a, they're the pri- they're people imprisoning those people. They are the executioners. They're yes, the bad. No, dudes. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yes. they're arguing for harm to others, and so there's always been a chance that you'll get fired if you show disrespect and disdain for your coworkers' mm-hmm. lives, right? So what the question really comes down to for me is deplatforming. Should social media companies have the power, as traditional media companies always have, to choose whose voices get amplified? And the problem for these companies, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, is their complicity in the casualization of labor. Oh, yeah. I, I think you're, you know, you're you're pointing to the bar culture is is great, right? Because like many other industries, right? There, there's a kind of gig work aspect there, right? And mm-hmm. and the platform economy is trying to make labor, uh, you know, is trying to devalue labor. It prides itself on keeping payroll costs low, and I do think that's what's in the end. I, can I cuss on? Oh, please, this? yes. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think that's going to fuck them in the end. Right? I really hope you're right. And also, like, think of Jack. Think of Mark. Do you think those guys spend any time in real bars? No, they live in bubbles. Uh, and if they, you know, if they had paid more people to both create content and do content better moderation from the start, they would have a president, a precedent for self-regulation, just as MSNBC and Fox News and The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times do. They don't they don't have that precedent. And so their casualization of labor has put them into, you know, and they've been making this argument for years that Twitter is the public forum. Twitter is the public square, right? Facebook is the, you know, uh, is the marketplace. And, you know, those are all things that the state has the right to regulate. Yeah. And that the state, in fact, has the duty to sort of protect the interests of the populace and the the freedoms and liberties of the populace within those environments. So if you are the public forum, if you are the public square, if you are the marketplace, then guess what? Right? Look mm-hmm. forward to being rigorously legislated and regulated. Right? If you are a private company, then you have to do that content moderation and you have to do that content creation and you also have to pay people to do it. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you have to recognize that the, you know, the people who are building big brands on your platform, you have to have a relationship with them that takes into consideration your interests as a corporation. Right. And so if you don't want to be associated with, you know, alt-right figures, then you have to do content creation and content moderation that excludes them from your platform. This all relates to the Chappelle article you wrote. I highly, highly recommend reading it. It's in the podcast description as well. And you end with a, I love the last paragraph here and I'm not going to summarize it, but um, I am going to mention something that I didn't really think of until this conversation. Unforgiven is the title of one of Chappelle's pieces uh, that he's released in the last calendar in the last year. And it's named after the Clint Eastwood film, which is um, a guy that to me is on the wrong side of history. And I don't think it's unfair to say at certain points has become a meme of a racist old man. And maybe my fear is that Chappelle is just becoming a version of that racist old man the way he speaks about the Me Too movement, his Cosby stuff in the last few specials. Is that all that's just going on? It's just like an old man with power who still has the tools and says the right words at the right time to seem important and actually won't have this cultural imprint that someone like Twain had? Or is it just a a few missteps here and he could actually still be as important as I think he is? I think think we're at a, a kind of hinge point. I think it could it could go either of the two directions that you described. I think when Chappelle signed with Netflix in 2016, uh, or maybe it was 2015, but his first, you know, he sort of the Chappellezance, right? The reemergence of Chappelle, uh, largely through Netflix specials and SNL, uh, you know, appearances, began in late 2016. And since that point, Chappelle has clearly been hell bent on taking vengeance on Comedy Central. 
right? That's been arguably his prime directive, right? And he's now achieved that goal. And in the process, he's proven himself one of the most powerful people in comedy. Mm -hmm. He can, he can bully network executives. He can also bully fringe comics and, and that's a problem. Right. And so now that he's achieved that goal without having any concrete directive, what's he going to do with this power, right? And that question makes me squirm, right? I want to be optimistic about it. And I do have a lot of admiration for what Chappelle has done uh, over the course of his career. And I think he's a very thoughtful, uh, very dynamic figure. And although I certainly think he plays up his ego on stage, as you described earlier, I also get the impression that he has healthy doubt at times. Uh, And so I think the question becomes at this particular moment when he no longer has the, the personal vendetta to fulfill, but he still has this incredibly potent brand and the ability to to take control of any number of you know, large platforms. And his audience has largely stuck with him, even when he's seeking controversy and he's not actively trying to make them laugh. Yeah. I mean, there's very few people who can claim to have a, a, a greater political potential than Chappelle has right now. I have no idea what he's going to do with it. And that's why I think this is a real turning point, a hinge point in our, you know, when we look back and assess his career, what he does from this point forward, I think, or, you know, that's going to be in the first line of his obituary, as it were. Hmm. That's an interesting take. Uh, Brian Moylan is a fantastic writer and wrote something very similar about Kim Kardashian uh, for NBC uh, last week about how now she's in a very he didn't compare her to Chappelle but now that she's got the divorce from Kanye she's no longer with keeping up with the Kardashians she's got this multi-billion or multi-million dollar uh, platform with Hulu it'll be very interesting to see where she goes too because she's the only person that I think could maybe affect this many people in somewhat unconventional ways that's been around in the ethos in the ether for like 20 years. Yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting comparison. The one that came to mind for, I was, I was sort of asking myself the same question not too long ago. And the, the one that came to mind for me as another unexpected, but I think useful analogy for Dave Chappelle is Taylor Swift. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Here's somebody with a massive, massive audience who already has a relatively long history in the industry, who's clearly got some dynamic political perspectives, who is has largely, you know, has has kind of taken over the industry or has at least proven her power within the music industry that she can sort of guide at least her own 
future and possibly have an effect on reforming the industry for other artists. That's something that I think Chappelle has the potential to do as well. And maybe yeah. maybe that in and of itself would be enough, right? If he can really turn this power into creating more opportunities and better situations for up and coming, a, a sort of diverse subset of up and coming comedians, that's a pretty, you know, uh, that's a pretty good outcome. Uh, and, and we'll see whether he and, and Taylor Swift can do those sorts of things or whether they're going to go in entirely different and unexpected directions for, for good or ill. Do you, one last question here. You said doubt. You said that Chappelle occasionally shows doubt. Where do you see that doubt? Hmm. Um, I think, one, in the fact that he walked away from a highly remunerative show, right, that, you know, that he had so much skepticism about his own ability to use this medium in a way that he found ethically, uh, in a way that he found redeemable. Okay. And he had so much. He had so much doubt about his own ability to take this show that was, as you know, a massive, massive hit at the time. Right. Most you know, most comedians would have embraced that moment as their opportunity to do whatever they had been dreaming of. And he had enough doubt about his own ability to use it towards presenting a perspective that would be good <laughs> for society that he walked away. I think that's one key moment where he has demonstrated a degree of self-doubt. In some of his interviews, and I think, again, oftentimes when he's talking about that moment in his career, you will also see a certain amount of self-reflection. Uh, and I, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I do sustain a, an amount of hope that nobody can be so deft a critic of structural forces as Chappelle has been over the course of his career and not be capable of dynamic self-analysis. Uh, respectfully, have you heard of Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> fair, fair enough. I, I mean, they're, they're, you're, you're probably right. Maybe I am naive and there are major figures but jefferson was always locked in a battle for political power what is Chappelle? he was in a, he was in a battle with viacom for 20 years how is what is power at a certain point well it, it's cultural power and the ways in which you gain and deploy cultural power are much less coherent than the ways in which you gain and deploy political power. And I think that they, you know, certainly this, when I think about Twain's career, this is always something that chastises me is that he was often willing to take risks 
knowing that the ways in which he was using his celebrity, which he was using his popularity, in which he was using his platform, might backfire upon him. And I think that Chappelle takes those risks as well. Yes, that's fair. Here's my problem, and I just figured it out with all of this, and only after speaking with you and reading this piece did I come to it. It's that I don't see that doubt. And I don't think walking away was doubt. If anything, it was the exact opposite of doubt. It was belief in self without doubt that I am doing the right thing. They are wrong. I am right. And unfortunately, the way this most recent special, not special opens with the COVID um, uh, hero framing, there is a lesson to be learned there of maybe I shouldn't be doing this because now I I am at risk and I have COVID. Yes, I'm healed, but we don't actually know what our lungs are going to look like under an x-ray in five years and 10 years and 20 years. So now I am showing you that it's okay if you get COVID. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Even though I've done all these protections for nearly a year, it's fine. I'm fine now. I'm healed. I'm better than you. There's no self-reflection there, actually. It's the exact opposite. It's... You've just now proven the point that I am the hero that has never stumbled. And my and the only times I've ever come close to stumbling are when people like Viacom or people that said maybe I shouldn't do a comedy show during a global pandemic and they're the problem. Does this make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly... I, I would be very curious to know the context. You know, he, there's a sort of cut where he begins with that un, undeniably you know, self-congratulatory message. I'd be very interested to know what the contexts were for that. But regardless of what they were, he made the choice to to cut the 10 minutes in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the way in which he frames his recovery from COVID is deeply problematic. At the same time, I do think that one argument Chappelle is making there and that Chappelle can make is that, you know, he has this platform right now and by God, do we need people talking about the January 6th insurrection, talking about police violence, right? Well, and hear there's me out. Hold very on. Hold few on. Hold people on. Before have, you continue, oh, before you continue, you're hundred yeah. percent right. But hear me out. That type of thinking, the, I got COVID, I'm fine. It's going to be Okay. That type of thinking is what leads to the people that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, never actually looking at self and finding how you're the victim at all time, whilst also being the hero, is how you get QAnon instead of a Queens of the Stone Age fan. It's how you get insanity because you're not actually reflecting on self. You're trying to find evidence that supports whatever asinine thing you believe. Hmm. So whilst it's great that Chappelle is saying certain things at minute three, those first two minutes have polluted the waters where it's pointless. Is is Chappelle a conspiracy theorist? He's friends with Joe Rogan. You tell me. (laughs) Okay, since I since I don't know the Rogan, I'm just I'm I'm BSing. I have no idea if Chappelle's a conspiracy theorist, but I would not be surprised. That's the. I mean, I think that's the question that the first few minutes of this last special, the Redemption Spong special, forces us to ask: Is is he saying that you know he understood the risks of COVID, he did whatever he could to mitigate them, but in 
in order to sustain a platform and in order to build the community that he sees as associated with his touring, he had to take some degree of risk and that in the end he got COVID anyway. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying COVID is not really that big deal. It's just like the flu. You know, we're making a big deal out of nothing. We're ruining careers. We're ruining companies. We're ruining businesses, so on and so forth. That, which I do believe is a conspiratorial, paranoid, and bullshit argument. I do think Chappelle leaves enough ambiguity in that special for us to not be sure which of the two arguments he's making. And I'm not sure he should be leaving that ambiguity. But I also the can't first tell part, what she's trying to say. Well, the yeah. first part is a lie because he doesn't he doesn't need the money. He doesn't need the money, but he like he clearly sees his value his stand up as valuable outside of its monetary recuperation. Yes, but he didn't right? he didn't catch COVID by doing okay. So the Letterman show that's at his compound, the eight forty six special that's at right. his compound. No COVID. He got this. He got COVID by doing shows on the road and partying after hours with the other comics. That's how he got it. Okay, that's and you know that's a piece that I'm just not aware of. But right? that's the like, thing. Where, like you could yeah. do this safely. He did do it safely for a while. Yeah, and then he just got tired. Because guess what? COVID fatigue is real. We all have it. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, and and I don't think glorifying. I don't think glorifying yourself for succumbing to COVID fatigue is you know, something we should celebrate. But I also have a certain degree of sympathy for Chappelle's desire to keep the club circuit going, to just keep himself in front of audiences, in front of live audiences. And I will respectfully disagree with that completely. Yeah. <laughs> because that's one of the most dangerous things you could do. And you're setting, you are the most important working comic and you're setting the worst example. And you were trying yeah. to set a somewhat decent example. You should have never done it. And this is setting things back so far. And it's giving rise to insane people in the alt right because. That's that's who believes this stuff, and this is really disheartening. And it, it'll be interesting to see who still likes Chappelle after all this. I don't think he's well, going to lose most people. I think the majority I of people don't, don't care. I don't think he's losing people. And, and here's a question I have for you. Given this idea that maybe Chappelle is in some ways offering an olive branch to the alt-right, to the conservative comedy industry that you alluded to from the Seth Simons piece earlier, if he is offering that olive branch, is there some value to those audiences having to reckon with Chappelle's critique of structural racism and police violence? You would think are, that are in some ways those the exact people who need to be listening to Dave Chappelle's work. You would think that, but that's why he walked away in season three of Chappelle's show is because the white guy laughed at the thing that was inappropriate that he shouldn't have been laughing at. So no, it's a failed experiment before it even begins. But There's already proof of that. 
he's not doing he's not doing the same type of comedy anymore. He's not doing what he was doing with Chappelle. So he's not doing, you know, critiques of racial stereotypes. He's doing critiques of, you know, American structures of power. He, kind of. He's also doing I'm a, he's also doing strongman critiques in the same what, what he's doing right now with the Comedy Central stuff is not that dissimilar to any Trump argument about any resort of his. It, it's he's the guy at the top. And this is the point in your piece that how you ends it. Yeah, this is who is this for? This is for an yeah. old TV show. That's really what this all boils down to. Something that you and I have nothing. We have nothing unless you have Viacom stock that I don't know about. No. You have no like, I don't care about this. You shouldn't care about this. It's interesting. Don't get me wrong. It's interesting, but it's not really new. And it's been well-written about and well-spoken about, well-spoken about Jesus. It's been covered. So what is this for? So there might be a few minutes of structural racism and how power works and all that stuff, but not really. It's not ever going to really cut through. And it's super easy for a racist dude to be like, yeah, Chappelle's right. They screwed him with the TV show because it's one person. They don't view it as a structural thing they view it as this is this is our god this is our strong man so yeah I, I don't see that happening i you know and this is why i'm at this moment of uncertainty is because what you've just described seems largely correct to me what i would say is and, and as you said this is sort of what i say in the piece it, it's very dangerous to give somebody who is as smart and accomplished as a Mark Twain or a Dave Chappelle proof of their cultural power. Mm -hmm. And that is clearly, if, if you're going to ask me what did Chappelle get, what are the stakes of this defeat of HBO and Viacom, CBS and Comedy Central, what he got was proof of his cultural power. And the question that we're asking right now, and which I won't pretend to have an answer to, is what is he going to do with it? You, Me, Them, Everybody is made by me, Brandon Weatherby. Our theme music is by Daniel Knox. Our art is by Jillian Ron. You can hear all 13 years of shows at you, me, them, everybody.com. If you're listening to this in Spotify or on iTunes, the last year of episodes are available uh, with some sprinklings of the other ones. If you want the rest of the catalog, which features over 700 episodes, you meet them, everybody.com. Our Patreon page is on our about page. It's all there. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all that good stuff at sign Y M T E. Thanks for listening. I'll hug the places that you've been sleeping. Friends and family I'll be keeping. Won't be.